Hello and welcome to the first episode of Vascular Crosstalk. This podcast is brought to you by the North American Vascular Biology Organization, NAVO. My name is Lisandra Vila Ellis and I am a member of NAVO's Education Committee and I will be the host of Vascular Crosstalk. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Hasina Outs Reed about her trajectory and experience in the field of vascular biology. Dr. Outsreed is an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Cornell. She received her undergraduate degree from Princeton University and her MD-PhD in Cellular and Molecular Biology from Columbia University. Her clinical training in internal medicine and pulmonary and critical care was done at the University of Pennsylvania, where she also conducted her postdoctoral research with Dr. Mark Kahn. In her lab at Cornell, Dr. Outsreed studies the role of the pulmonary lymphatic vasculature in chronic lung disease and lung homostasis. Ongoing work in her lab will investigate how underlying lymphatic dysfunction affects the lung's response to injury and the mechanism by which it occurs. We are going to start off by putting you on the spot and making you give us a little elevator speech about your research. Uh, if someone uh, that wasn't familiar with your work and we were just introducing them to you, how can you encapsulate your research in one to two minutes? Go. So my lab is focused on how the lungs get injured and the way that we can try to use what we learn about that process for treating lung disease. And in particular, my lab is focused on the lung lymphatic vasculature, which as you may know, is completely separate from the blood vascular system. And relative to other organs, the lung lymphatics have been understudied in terms of their role in lung disease and lung biology. So we're really focused on figuring out how these lung lymphatic vessels work and figuring out how, if they're working or not working, that contributes to the ways that the lungs get injured. And we love using animal models to sort of investigate this using animal models of impaired lymphatic flow, animal models of lung injury to really ask these questions and get at the mechanism of how the lung lymphatics work. That is so interesting. I studied the lung myself, so I'm like, yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did you get to that research field in the first place? Yeah, so, you know, I am a vascular biologist and when I was doing my PhD, I worked in Jan Kidieski's lab when he was at Columbia at the time. And I was really studying the interactions between macrophages and blood endothelial cells um, in sort of uh, uh, inflammatory microenvironments. And then, you know, I'm an MD PhD. And so I went on to do some of my clinical training at University of Pennsylvania. And it was time for me to finish my clinical training, which I did in pulmonary and critical care medicine. I did my postdoctoral research in Mark Kahn's lab at Penn. And his lab, as you know, is extremely, extremely um, uh, well-known and amazing lab studying the blood vasculature and the lymphatics. And he actually had a project about the lung lymphatic vasculature that needed someone to do it. And it really was just a match made in heaven because I sort of had just trained in uh, pulmonary medicine and was a vascular biologist. And this was just something that really could be something that I could sink my teeth into and become a niche for myself. So I, I really, it was just very fortuitous that I sort of thought about ways that I could create a niche given my um, scientific uh, experience and interest and also my clinical experience as a, um, for the MD portion of my training. So it really just, it really ended up being one of those match mates in heaven. How do you get to the vascular biology part? 
So that, you know, was interesting because when I, I kind of always knew I wanted to be a scientist. And so when I was thinking about um, PhD and MD PhD programs, I was trying to think of like a, a broad range of places that had different kinds of labs. And I think I, I don't actually know how I ended up uh, in Jan's lab. I definitely did a rotation and had an amazing time and really just seemed like everything that we were doing, the tools we were using seemed both so interesting and also so clinically relevant. So I just loved looking and studying and um, sort of investigating more about how vessels work. I also think that um, I have a sort of interest in microscopy and you know vascular biology really lends itself so well um, with a lot of the tools that we use for advanced microscopy. So that definitely definitely was a good match as well. So it really just seemed to be something that as I was doing my rotations as a PhD student, it kind of just seemed like something that was really resonating with me scientifically. What got you interested in science when you started looking at what career paths you could follow? Um, it was really organic. I mean, not to be a cliche, but I, I was that kid that was melting her Barbies. And I was that kid that was like blowing up the house with her science kits. So I kind of always had an interest in how things work and just thought it was so fun to really figure things out. And yeah. it's really just been a driving force. And I think I was a scientist before I knew what that was and sort of was just trying to figure out the language to express what I wanted to do. So, you know, by the time I got to college, it was very clear to me that, you know, I loved my biology courses in high school. I already knew I wanted to be a molecular biology major when I went to college. I didn't think that I knew what a career path for um, a PhD would look like um, and what how you could make a career from being a scientist. And I especially didn't know what the career path would look like for an MD PhD. So right. it was really just by sort of exposure to that career path in college that I decided, wow, that seems like the most amazing job ever to be able to get to think for a living and ask questions and answer them. Yes. Um, so I think it's very interesting that you mentioned that point about being an MD PhD, because I feel like sometimes people think, oh, you like one thing or more, or you started as an MD and kind of fell into the research part. How do you see it? How do you see that combination? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways that people approach it. I can kind of only speak from my own experience, which was that I actually was very much set on going to graduate school as a PhD only candidate for a very long time. And it was kind of at the last minute that I decided to do a combined degree program. I didn't think that I necessarily needed or wanted the medical degree to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. But it was it was very late when I decided that I actually did want that element to be able to sort of um, have that interaction with patients, but still be really rooted in a strong PhD environment. And at least for me, the types of questions that I want to answer scientifically are really best served with having that PhD training. So I don't think that I, at least in my experience, could have arrived at this point through an MD only training. And I think it really works well if you sort of are wedding what you want to do clinically with what you want to do in a research capacity and then just getting the best training you need to accomplish that. So for the types of questions that I was interested in, that I am interested in, that PhD training was absolutely essential to be able to, to do that. Um, but of course, there's many different paths in science and the path is not always straight. So, you know, what works for one person might not work for someone else, but that's sort of just been my experience. Right. Yeah. Most of the times it's not a straight line. You right. <laughs> wandering yeah. through places. Yes, absolutely. Um, so let's take a break for one second and let's do a little game okay. uh, or association game. Um, this is just to get to know you better okay. um, and just have a little fun. Okay. 
All right, so I'm going to say something and you're going to tell me the first thing you can think of. Favorite model organism? Mouse. <laughs> Favorite cell type? Endothelial cell. Do you want to get specific about that one? No, not really, actually. <laughs> Just an endothelial cell, yeah. Most dreaded lab technique? Uh, most dreaded lab technique? Gosh. That's a tough one. What would I say? Hmm. I know a lot of people will be saying Western blots. <laughs> no, I like a good Western blot. No, no, no. Let's see. Um, I guess if I had to say, I would say Eliza's just because they're boring. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The, now, the thing you love to do most at the lab. Um, I would say anything involving microscopy and imaging is my favorite thing to do. Okay. Procrastinator, yes or no? Um, in my previous life, no. Now with three small children, yes. <laughs> and finally, hobbies. Um, reading and anything involving wine. Anything involving What was the last book you read? Um, let's see. It's actually been um, a while. There was this one. Now I'm going to blank on the title, but I just finished it. That always happens. Um, oh, no, I have to, I have to get this for you. It's by a Korean American author. Gosh, can I, can I literally tell you that later? Cause I'm going to blank and I don't want to get the name. <laughs> yes, you can. Absolutely. All right. Well, you remember, uh, or try to, <laughs> we can move on to some other questions. Okay. Sounds good. Um, I want to get a little bit more on like a reflection kind of um, topic about what things you could have done differently or what things do you think that looking back you would have totally decided to do different or what you would have told yourself um, regarding directing your career or setting up your lab? Okay. Um, I remember the name of the book is called Pachinko, by the way. <laughs> now that we're saying that. You like it? It was amazing. It actually was really, really good. It was such a beautiful story and so well told. So, you know, um, yeah. now that I don't have brain fog, what would I do differently and sort of reflecting on? Yeah. And if you had to, if you could were able to tell yourself in the past, past you, anything regarding uh, the direction of your career or setting up a lab, what things do you say? Honestly, I think I would just encourage myself to just keep going, right? There's a lot, it's, you know, getting through every day to the next stage is difficult and it's hard with kind of the everyday failures or difficulties to kind of see the, the thing you're trying to achieve in the end. And I think I would just encourage myself to, to just keep going, like just put one foot in front of the other, let the science continue to guide you. At the end of the day, the science still makes me so happy and it's still so interesting. I still wake up in the middle of the night thinking about experiments or thinking about something I want to test. And, and that is exciting. So really just anchor to that and use that as the motivation to just keep, keep moving forward. <laughs> keep moving forward. That's a good place to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So where do you see your field, your own field going in the future? Um, well, I hope in 
investigating a lot of new targets for the lymphatic vasculature in lung disease. I think that we have a lot to learn about how these vessels in sort of with the focus on the, the lymphatic endothelium really play a role in disease progression. And I think there's a lot of really great work to be done in that field, a lot of really great collaborations to be done in that field. Um, I think there already has been some really exciting findings um, up until this point. And I think between collaborations between vascular biologists and lymphatic biologists, the immunology community and the lung community, sort of the, the um, synergy between all those different minds is really gonna be very exciting for the field because there's, there's just so much really good work to be done and so many really interesting questions to be answered. Yeah, it's, yeah, it sounds so interesting. And honestly, like the way, you, the way technology is moving so quickly now, just one essay is not longer in use, like three years later. Right. Um, it's just, it's exciting. Mm -hmm. It totally is. And, and, you know, it just means that we have better and better ways to answer the question. But the key part, even with all the amazing tools we have, the thing that I love about science that is that the key part is still being able to ask the right question and to be able to know what the right question is, is still so important. And so I'm just so inspired and motivated to get keep moving on in terms of honing that skill because that's the one that I think is just really, really important and really cool. Speaking of uh, things and people that inspire you, um, what can you mention a couple of scientists that whose work inspires you? Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's really easy. I mean, you know, I trained with, with um, Jan Kitieski and Mark Kahn and they inspired me then to become a scientist and they inspire me now to continue and try to do really great work. I mean, I still consider them both to be really, really imp important mentors for me. And not just in terms of sort of their mentorship personally and as a scientist, but also just the science. I mean, they're just so incredibly smart. And that skill that I was talking about in terms of asking the right question and going about it in the right way is just such an amazing thing if you can do that well. And that's something that they do well and that I hope that they've trained me to do well. And so, you know, they, they just continue, really continue to inspire me, yeah. Uh, and how was that mentoring experience that you had with both of them inform the way you right now deal with mentees? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that sets, um, you know, I've had amazing mentor experiences and the things that really set them, sets them apart is just being accessible and also sort of meeting me where I am. So being able at whenever I needed help to be able to ask them for that help and have them be open to me coming to them for help is always just so important as you're getting started, but also knowing when it's okay to let me kind of figure things out on my own and it's okay to give me a little bit of freedom. That's a delicate balance, I think, to, to strike and both of them did that so well. And that's something that I try to emulate now um, in my own lab. And I think you just, you really have to meet people where they are. Not every um, trainee is going to be the same in terms of how they like to be mentored. Um, and it's not going to be the same in terms of how they work. But if the goal is for people to do their best work and to get their best training, then I think it is up to the mentee and the mentor pair to kind of sort of mentor each other in terms of what works for them to get to that goal, right? So if the goal is to do the best work and to continue to train and get better, there might needs to be adjustments on both sides in terms of how you communicate and make that happen. And that's really the skill of it that I think that is really cool in terms of team building and really being able to train people to become their best selves. Yeah, that's so important because people learn in different ways and 
have different ways of functioning and going about their days. People just right. want to check in every day and others want to wait until they have a presentation <laughs> to, right. to discuss data. So yeah, I think um, kind of targeting depending on their personalities is so important. Um, so another question that we have for you is about grants and grantsmanship. So in all the grants that you have reviewed over the years, um, maybe the ones you've written yourself to, what is the most effective trick of the trade that you have seen or used? Well, I'm definitely still learning this. So I probably need to like listen to later podcasts and get advice <laughs> on how to do this. But um, I think, you know, one mistake that I feel like I make a lot and now I'm becoming more attuned to in the grants I read is, is trying to do too much in the grant and, and really just getting drowned in every possible thought in my own head about what could be happening. And sometimes I'll read a grant and it'll just be so elegantly written and so clear that even if I don't know a lot about that particular topic, I completely understand the question. I understand the relevance and I understand how they're going to do it. And that is just a really a beautiful thing to read when you see it. And is really highlighted to me how much I need to just, just really just you know, be clear about what your hypothesis is, be clear about what you want to do. But again, that's the skill, right? It's easier to just throw a whole bunch of things into a grant and do a million things and have a million questions. That is much easier than choosing the right question and the right way to answer it in a clear and in, um, succinct way. So I'm really learning that it is harder to really streamline that again and ask that right question in the right way experimentally to go about it. So hopefully I'm starting to get better at that because I'm definitely guilty of that too. It's so hard because you start getting excited while you write and then you start thinking about other experiments and you're like, yeah, this fits right there. And right. it doesn't. But <laughs> it does. And then it's like the grant is becoming like my own internal stream of consciousness about like experiments I can do. And that is not good. <laughs> like you don't keep it, keep it in the brain for later. Yeah, it's like you're writing two documents, your yeah. research proposal for the grant and just a list of experiments you want to do. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so how uh, now we're kind of wrapping up and I would like to know what things excite you about teaching, about mentoring uh, this new generation of scientists? Um, you know, it's just, it's so important, right? And I think being able to be a good mentor is, is because I've had such good mentorship, I really know what that looks like. And I know what that did for me in my career. And so the least I can do is to try to be a good mentor and pass that on. And I try to really actually hone that as a skill um, that's necessary for sort of the, the field and the future of science. And I think it's just so, so important. It's something that I'm actively working on. And it really just excites me because, you know, people are, trainees are just so smart. They're just so smart and they come with so many ideas. And I think it's so cool to take someone who has ideas and has the willingness to learn and really just put them in an environment where they can thrive and they can really shine and, and apply those ideas in a directed way is a really, really cool thing. I mean, there's nothing better too than teaching when you see the light bulb go off in someone's brain, you know, like, ah, oh, I got to them there. I mean, there's nothing more gratifying that, than, than seeing that moment. So it really drives me to try to be the best teacher and the best mentor that I can be while also knowing that I am still in need of teaching in need of mentorship. And I think that's something that never goes away at any stage of your career, always seeking out ways to get better, always seeking out, um, you know, the, the feedback from people who are, who are really, really smart and know a lot about science. So the, 
yeah, you're never fully trained yourself. Uh, how, how, what do you do about that? Do you just rely on the network of PIs you have around yourself? How, how do you handle that? I mean, both. I mean, you, you can ask Mark and Jan. I email them all the time and always pester them to read grants and to read aims. And you have to be really, I think you have to be really open and forthcoming. I mean, I will have all, anybody who will listen, read a grant or listen to a research proposal or an idea that I have because the scientific community is so rich. And even if somebody's not doing exactly the field that you're in, smart people understand smart science and can always give you something useful. So I really try to just be very open about sharing my ideas with collaborators or with other, you know, like you said, other PIs within my institution. I very much still rely on mentorship that I've had in the past because, you know, they've seen me throughout the stages of my career and are already at these very, very senior levels. And so they have that 360 view to be able to continue to mentor in all ways. So I'm, I'm just very forthcoming with wanting feedback wherever I can get it. Good. That's really good advice. Uh, for anybody listening. Um, and what do you think are challenges that might be more specific to these new generation of scientists? Well, you mentioned one is that sort of the, the pace at which technology is moving forward, right? And so you really have to stay on top of the latest ways that you can answer the scientific questions because it, it does move so much more quickly than I feel like it even used to. I mean, I'm not, I'm not nothing approaching very senior, but still things are moving faster than even they did when I was still training. So I think, you know, that can be a challenge. It also can be a challenge. Again, there are so many different ways to get all kinds of data, but honing down on, well, what are you going to do with that data, right? If you get this huge, you know, uh, collection of data points, but does that answer the question that you have? And that requires you having a question that you want to answer. So I think, you know, not just saying, okay, well, we could do this experiment and it would lead to all this data, but should you do this experiment right. and what will you do with that data when you get it? Cause there's a difference, right? I mean, you can get lots of data points, but if they don't mean anything particular towards the question you want to answer, then that's not the greatest experiment. So I think, um, you know, staying on top of and really leaning into the new technologies as they um, as they come about, but also remembering that the, at the core of it, science is still the same where you have to have that question that you're trying to answer. No matter what tools you're using, you still have to have that question. How do you, or do you have any tricks or any advice for our listeners to ask the right question? I, I think honestly, it's something that I do every day. So even if I'm speaking to the people in my lab and we're talking about experiments for the week, I mean, and you can ask them, I periodically will just say, wait, why are we doing this experiment again? Like, what is the question we're answering again with this experiment? Just to keep everybody honest about what we're doing. So that it's just not like you're just sort of putting one foot in front of the other and doing experiments. You're really actually asking, does this serve the purpose of the question that you're trying to answer. And I think to some extent, it's almost easier for me as a more junior PI to keep that in mind because I really have to stay so focused, right? On the questions that I'm trying to answer. I'm trying to make sure that my lab has that good footing. And so there's not a lot of wiggle room to get off course, right? So everything really needs to stay purposeful towards that question. So it's really just a great exercise. And my advice would be just sort of every day 
or every week, just check in and say, wait, what is the question we're trying to answer? How are the things that we're doing going towards achieving that question? And if the things that you're doing aren't in, in service of that question or questions that are the core principles of the lab, then it is worth saying, why are we doing this, right? It, what is the purpose of what we're doing if it's not towards those core questions or those core principles? Yeah, that's, that's a really good idea to just make sure that everything's on track and you're not wasting time either. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, because you can get, it's kind of like those rabbit holes. You're like, okay, yeah. well then I can do the next thing, but you have to take a step back. And I think in a lot of ways, that's the job of the PI to take a step back and say, wait, no, but why are we doing that? Right. You right. can do a lot of things. Well, why are we doing that? Yes. Um, and you are a junior faculty a member um, and a minority <laughs> junior faculty. So mm -hmm. what do you think are the challenges that you specifically uh, are facing right now? And what advice, I think, to make sure that we have these in a positive, constructive way, what advice would you have for people um, like yourself that are, or for trainees that are just starting now their labs or are starting to become independent and may face similar challenges? Um, you know, as a junior faculty member, it is, I think it's tricky. Obviously, COVID has made tricky things tricky for everybody, right? So there, you know, there's no monopoly on the way that that COVID has made things hard. But I think for junior faculty who are starting out, it's been particularly hard because you're at this very critical time where you're trying to get things up and running and there's so much chaos going on with lab closures and getting staff. And so, you know, I think again, coming back to the principle of like just remembering what it is about this career path that made you want to choose it to begin with, right? So even despite all the chaos, the fact that I still wake up at night really excited about knowing the results of experiments is meaningful, right? That's a meaningful thing and sort of anchoring to that and saying, okay, but you know what? This might be crazy, but we're going to get that data back today and it's going to be great, <laughs> you know? So just kind of anchoring on the things that make you happy and continuing to move forward. And I think, you know, uh, representation does matter. I certainly understand that there, there's a lot of issues with diversity and inclusion in the world of science. But I also think that one thing that's really great is that science is something where if the science is good, it should be able to, sign, to shine through. And that's a really, really amazing thing. So just coming back to the fact that, you know what, but if it's a good question and you answer it in a great way, the science can shine through. And I just try to anchor on that despite the fact that there's such you know, obvious issues in terms of inclusion and diversity and representation, but hopefully having more and more people represented who sort of look like people of color, or look like women, will really emphasize the points that, of course, there's a space for everyone in this world. If you can ask a good question and answer it in the right way, there's space for everyone in this world. And that can be something that's really, really respected and beautiful. Thank you for joining us on the first episode of Vascular Crosstalk. We would like to hear from you. Please let us know what you thought about this first episode, future topics that you would like to hear about, and other people you would like us to interview. You can reach out to us via Twitter at Vascular Biology. We look forward to hearing from our vascular community. This podcast was produced by NatVo Education Committee, and I want to thank Niha Uha and Strider Meadows for their work in making this podcast possible. This was Lissandra Villa Ellis for Vascular Crosstalk. Until we meet again.